Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> the Shape of Water. If I told you about her, the princess without voice, what would I say? She's deaf? Mute, sir. She can hear you. You clean that lab, you get out. This may very well be the most sensitive asset ever to be housed in this facility. You may think that thing looks human. Stands on two legs, right? But we're created in the Lord's image. You don't think that's what the Lord looks like, do you? This creature is intelligent, capable of language, of understanding emotions. When he looks at me, he doesn't know how I am incomplete. He sees me as I am. The natives in the Amazon worshipped him like a god. Get him out. What are you talking about? No. We need to take it apart, learn how it works. I don't want an intricate, beautiful thing destroyed. We can do nothing. I'm sorry. Don't do this, Elasa. What is she saying? Don't do this. Oh, God, it's not even human. Welcome to the last Del Toro film for the time being, though not the last in this series. Uh, next week we'll be delivering an epilogue with the GDT-produced 2007 film The Orphanage, directed by Juan Antonio Bayona. This is a fairy tale for a troubled age, none too subtly transposing the spy-laden Cold War era against our own. It is a time of Russia sabotaging America and America reacting with overwhelming paranoia and self-destruction, assisting their enemies by hurting one another when they are no longer able to distract themselves with shallow, brightly coloured, empty pablum. And a woman falls in love with a creature from the Black Lagoon and conducts in passionate aquatic fornication. So there was a film I saw a while back where an American has an experience in the water at a young age which leaves them feeling ever so slightly uncertain of their place on land. Then they meet a person, invite them back to their apartment and have sex with them. There's talk about how violent Bonanza is. But then evil scientists, particularly this angry guy who has it in for the person, wants to capture it and do experiments. After an elaborate rescue and a chase, the American and person end up in the water by the docks. The person kisses the American and they can now both breathe underwater, leaving the landlubbers behind to ponder what they have had to say goodbye to. And Splash was a huge success for Tom Hanks's career. Are you okay? Yeah. Well, why wouldn't you let me in? I was shy. You were shy? After the car and the elevator and the bedroom and on top of the refrigerator, you were shy? What I think is really funny, though, is I mentioned, so I was getting more tattoo work done on Friday, and I mentioned to my tattoo artist, Jess, I was like, oh, I'm going to be on this podcast, it's going to be about Shape of Water, we've been doing this whole thing, and she's like, that movie's just splash, like, just, <laughs> just different, and 
I've never seen Splash, so she then explained to me the entire plot of it as she was, like, tattooing my arm, and I thought that was really just, like, a weird thing, that you would then lead with that. <laughs> well, I was just being flipper about it, but, uh... uh... Sorry, sorry. <laughs> this... I don't know. I think that joke was a little wet. Okay, anyway. okay. Well, don't be coy about it. There's going to be some fish puns in this one. <laughs> No, I would never imagine that. Anyway, Del Toro is fluid to an unparalleled degree in his ability. Like water, he fills the space he has poured into to match his surroundings, whilst still retaining his integrity and purity. Devil's Backbone, Pan's Labyrinth and Crimson Peak are the exceptions because those are his very personal love letters to gothic romance, ghost stories and dark fantasy. After the practice work of Kronos and the misfire of Mimic, he was able to make Blade 2 into an action-packed, over-the-top crowd-pleaser. He blended Mignola's world with his own and made it feel like Men in Black for Hellboy, and an urban miniature Lord of the Rings for Hellboy 2. He made Pacific Rim feel like Transformers for the superficial whilst expanding the depths with his own sensibilities. And for The Shape of Water, he took everything the Academy loves period stories about times America was in conflict, cruelty to women, people of colour and homosexuals by savage white men, rosy-coloured looks back into Hollywood's golden age when everything was simple and nobody said anything challenging on the surface, right down to incorporating universal monsters and dreamlike dance sequences, big sweeping romance and men pulling their own fingers off. And because that checklist was completed, the man who has been virtually ignored by this academy, his entire illustrious and amazing career, was rewarded with an orgy of nominations. It was nominated for Best Editing, it was nominated for Sound Mixing, Sound Editing, Costume Design, Cinematography, Original Screenplay, Best Actress in a Supporting Role for Octavia Spencer, Best Supporting Actor for Richard Jenkins, Best Actress for Sally Hawkins, and it won Best Production Design, Best Music, Best Motion Picture of the Year, and Best Achievement in Directing. It's also notable that while Universal were trying and failing to turn their monsters into big, pre-visualized action set-piece blockbusters, Del Toro stepped up to the plate and made a dark, brooding, sensitive drama about the creature from the Black Lagoon, which is a superb way of retelling the story from a contemporary perspective. The hero of that movie is now the villain of this one. Now this is the first of GDT's films that he hasn't done a commentary on, and the first one we are feeling around in the dark underwater on, because we could only get limited insight from the sparse extras. Ergo, there's a lot more room for speculation here. The year is 1962. Eliza Esposito dreams of water and lives above a cinema. She mops the floor at a government research centre. Her only two friends are her co-worker Zelda and her aged neighbour Giles. One day after the cruel government agent Strickland is mutilated and loses two fingers, she discovers a merman who has been brought back from the Amazon River. The Americans don't know what to do with it or how it could help them, and Russian spies are already in their midst, heightening the sense of Cold War paranoia. This story is about how Eliza and the creature forge an incredibly strong bond which transcends all kinds of boundaries. So I suppose it's another one of those, if you haven't seen it, really kind of go out of your way. Especially if you've, if you've been enjoying the Del Toro so far, it would it's kind of a no-brainer to see this first. 
if you haven't been watching them by all means continue listening and we will try to paint a watercolor of it as we're going at this point in the podcast i popped out to get a glass of water and left them to their own devices this is what happened so, so, I, so, so now, so now that the gentleman is gone, would you hit that fish? I think that's really the question. Honestly, yeah, totally. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm totally down for a little bit of cloaca plundering, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Yes. I'm definitely, I'm definitely prone to enjoying a fish stick now and then. Indeed. Well, uh, <laughs> I mean, the, the of the. Uh, sparse extras that we mined um, they did talk about in the design of the Gilman that they wanted him to be attractive and uh, well he's he's a god he's um, I think Guillermo said he wanted the um, the fishman version of uh, Michelangelo's David yeah and yeah I, I, I think, think they succeeded I agree. I agree. He's he's uh, he's very like handsome and powerful in like a, but in like a somewhat alien way, which is, you know, enticing to a certain subset of the population, myself included. So, he's got a dish of a fish. Yes, he is. Mm-hmm. The blue the blue plate special, you might say. <laughs> a lot of people when this uh, the first trailers came out were like, oh my god, Abe Sapien prequel, weren't they? But the um, he was quick to shoot those down with. Uh, this is definitely a different mm. um, character to Abe Sapien. He, uh, his, his responses are very mu- are much more primal. He is a, uh, a beast of instinct. But there is vulnerability there. There is uh, a sense of needing to understand. It's not just brutal and... He's feral. not feral. Yeah. He's yeah. he's instinctual. He's he's primal, but he's not feral. He's That's still intelligent. He's sentient. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I think they, they demonstrate that really neatly. Just just <clears> jumping <throat> ahead in the plot slightly, the scene with the cat um, after he <clears throat> has um, devoured one of the kitties. Um, oh. Giles says to Eliza, yeah. "He's a wild creature. We can't ask him to be anything else." But in the very next scene, mm. he is sat there playing with the cats. They have told him no, and he has understood. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he, he contemplates, much like the Iron Giant, he thinks mm-hmm. about who he is and who he is in relation to her and who she is. Yeah. Well, I mean, he even at one point gives Giles back his hair, and that ends up being – so a, a more uh, feral creature would be able to understand, okay, I have this, this healing. I feel like somewhat bad because I didn't mean to hurt this person. I'm going to heal the wound on his arm. But the the Gilman, the Fishman in, in this, he – actually can like see and understand that Giles is uncomfortable by aging and by the baldness in a way that he has nothing to do with but he can fix and he does so as a way of apologizing and that's not something that like an animal would do mm. one thing that occurred to us on I think the third viewing of this um, <clears throat> when Del Toro is talking about uh, the opening monologue uh, about uh, you know, shall I shall I tell you about what happened and the the, the monster that uh, tried to tear that tried to almost ruined everything? Or um, it's a, it's a wonderful opening monologue, but he says it happened a long time ago at near the end of the reign of a beloved prince, and he's talking about 1962. Now Giles is old as fuck already, and that made me think that the giving him the hair back may have had a Green Mile effect on him. Have you seen the Green Mile? 
I have not. Okay. Is that like a? Are you referring to like a de-aging effect or uh, a, a sustaining of life? Yeah, somebody mm. uh, performs a healing action on someone, on a someone. character in the Green Mile, yeah. where they end up a lot older than and they it otherwise ends up extending would have been expected to be unintentionally. So mm. the implication there, whether it was intentional or not, is that Giles is talking to us, maybe even now. Mm. Oh, that he has somehow carried forward yeah. over a period of years to, to kind of tell this story. Or at least yeah. that he's lived long enough beyond that point to say that it happened a long time ago. Yeah. Although that does feed into the fairy tale presentation. Because when yeah. something happened a long time ago, it's not pinned to any specific moment. Well, he says a long time ago in the last days of a fair prince's reign, right? He's and, talking about Kennedy at this point. Yeah, I was going to say, he's definitely going to be talking about Kennedy because that was the next year. Yeah. So that, But that would still be, you know, 40, 50 years ago. So When I first heard it, when we first saw it, I was like, oh my lord, is this creature actually a prince? A prince of his own people? And is this like the last days of his reign? Is he going to be killed at the end? That would have been a great parallel. Uh, Del Toro describes him as the last of his race, in fact. Yeah, and that he, he, never, he never knew companionship or love until now. Exactly the same as King Kong, then. that's the Oh, that was the other uh, creature that uh, Del Toro is fascinated by, that sense of loneliness and isolation. And it's probably not inappropriate to draw the parallel to Eliza as well, who is an orphan who clearly lives a very solitary existence without Giles and, uh, and Zelda. Yeah. So, yeah, this sets out to be a fairy tale. And the parallels with Pan's Labyrinth lay on top of it. They, these are companion pieces, again. If you consider this uh, maybe the older sister of Pan's Labyrinth, as in its themes are more mature in uh, the the sexual nature of it. Mm. Mm. And Eliza is older in chronological age than the the children of Pan's Labyrinth, Devil's Backbone. Yeah. Yeah, more like a like late like early adulthood like lover kind of version of it. Well, this really just because how many times have we said, oh, this is a companion piece to these older films, and like yeah. it keeps working. But now this is like the fourth time that we're talking about this. And I remember there was a quote. I think you even mentioned it in a previous episode where Guillermo says, "I just make the same film over and over again with different <laughs> yeah. different pieces." I had um, somebody at work asking if. Um, this was in the same world as any of Del Toro's other films and I said to be quite honest I just take it that all his movies take place in the same world there's mm. just this Guillermo universe that they yeah. all exist in <laughs> oh the cinematic universe that makes um, Abe Sapien like the the, the long lost cousin of yeah. the Gilman Lyra thought that she was she was like you know he's the wild version Abe's the one that got taken yeah. into human um, care when he was very little they so they both have a thing for <laughs> eggs and communication. Yeah. By the way, we only showed Lyra bits of this one. This was a bit too extreme for her. For now. But she did say it was one of the most beautiful films she'd ever seen. And Doug Jones is just literally every monster. Yes. Just all of the monsters. Yeah. Is, he, is Gamba just really scared of Doug Jones and he's trying to exercise it? <laughs> um, okay, so... The, oh, at the very beginning, the first shot is underwater, um, and it, we, we go in through that corridor, but to begin with, we see the top of it, and it's sort of like opening in front of us. It reminded me immediately of the tree in Pan's Labyrinth. Like, that, that tree's all over a lot of the posters, and it's, it's got a very 
uterine imagery there as well, mm. which he can't stop doing. He's no. obsessed with it, and that's yes. fine. It's wonderful Don't to look at. look at these. I wasn't gonna, but um, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, like, it's it starts off with that 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 sense of uh, the natural, but um, it, it, it's a wonderful dream sequence because it it immediately connects Eliza with water and then as soon as she wakes up she's like gotta get reconnected with water and then she immediately takes a bath and has an the, egg just going briefly back to the tree as well mm-hmm. um, I think there's something else about the, the using the tree as the framing device yeah. for going into this story um, and the same thing with uh, Pan's Labyrinth as well because what do you get from trees paper what do you make out of paper books fairy tale books yes yeah yeah, and and it can't be understated how well paced all of the like beats in that opening part are. Where you know they talk, the, the narrative talks about and a monster that's trying to tear them apart, and that's when Michael Shannon's name comes up. <laughs> and, nice, I've not caught that. Boy, is he scary! But uh, just in everything, just in general. Or if uh, I can make you squawk. I mean, what was that? What was that movie on Netflix that we watched? Oh, that, that one, uh, Pottersville. Oh God, that was creepy as hell, and he was the like hero. Uh, we ugh. hate movies that did, did a wonderful podcast about. They were just—it's uh, supposed to be this like fun, sweet family comedy about a, a down on their luck town who think they see Bigfoot, but it's actually a, a, a stressed beyond reason Michael Shannon in, a, in an ape costume. So freaking creepy, my skin literally crawled off of my <laughs> muscles and ran away from the screen. And like, like, you know, he, he's he's uh, he's writing in his book when people are like sort of coming to a store. He's like, "Oh, you don't have to pay me right now. You can pay me later." And he's writing in his book, and it's like, "Gotta kill this person now." <laughs> <laughs> I kind of can't imagine Michael Shannon laughing now that I'm thinking about it. No, what and even when he's supposed out? to kind uh-huh. of doing, he's supposed to be kind of doing it in this movie. He's like. <laughs> he's more amused than anything else. I yes. don't think I've ever seen him like cackle. And amused in the way that a serial killer looks at its next victim like, there's no soul inside of that thing. Was <laughs> <laughs> well, she a great big fat person? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, dude, heaven forbid if they ever remade Silence, Michael Shannon is Buffalo Bill. Oh, absolutely. And then and then it's got a real weird subplot with furries that did yeah. not sit right with me. Not, not, a, not a great furry story, is it? No. Anyway, so Michael Shannon's terrifying, and he's yeah. clearly the monster of this movie, and it says so right at the beginning when they show the opening credits, because that's when the narrative says so. And then the dream also, everything winds down, everything floats down to its position, just when she wakes up and the alarm clock goes off. Yeah. So, like, everything gets into position just in time for us to go to reality. Yeah. Uh, they, uh, the way they uh, shot the sequence was uh, called Dry for Wet, uh, which it, it looks like I described it to Sharon and she went, no. Nope. And I was like, right, no, you're going to have to bear with me on this one. The, 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 the furniture was suspended on cables, which are then painted out. And the hair and flowing material are CG'd on afterwards with a little... CG aftertouch and everything we're seeing here is the camera moving around a completely dry room and uh, with you know lighting effects and a little bit of like CGI added bubbles here and there and just a wonderful sense of floating movement to to make you feel like this place is suspended and I 
genuinely thought this was inside a water tank, mm. and I was Me like, too. "So this is visual effects at its best." I have yeah. to say, this is CG being used for absolutely what CG should be used. For. What is Jurassic Park? It is fantastic practical effects mm. aided by fantastic CGI absolutely. effects, and and for the things that you could not otherwise do practically. Yeah, to convey a scene where rather than just a great big monster greebly comes running around the place, or a skyscraper falls down, or a dude fights robots on top of a train, where you're like, "Well, that's not real. That's not real." And that's not real. You're like, what is real at this point? Because what they're doing is so mystifying, you kind of just think to yourself, well, they could have put her underwater. And, that adds and then to you're the so yeah. of disbelief rather than taking away from it. So, I mean, yeah, this is employment of effects uh, in a way that. Uh, Technicians spend their entire careers working towards being able to do this so perfectly that you kind of don't know whether they are specialists in practical or specialists in CG. Yeah, but you're absolutely right about when you said no, it definitely isn't because Sally Hawkins can't breathe underwater. (laughs) Yeah, despite evidence to the contrary. Uh, But they did do one scene underwater, like Mm -hmm. actually in a tank. Which one was that? The bathroom scene. Where they fill it up with water, that's actually done in a flooded bathroom, in a right. tank of water. Okay. okay. Which is impressive as hell, as well. Which, again, I can see why, because you'd need to have the, the, the body contact is very important in that scene, and it wouldn't look the same dry yeah. as it would um, surrounded by mm. water. And what's great is they ended up, apparently a lot of the set of this movie was taken from them striking the set of The Strain in the previous season, that that TV show. And uh, Guillermo and and so many of the behind the scenes things was just so delighted that they could reuse so much of the stuff. And apparently like the tank that they submerged the bathroom room in for that scene is like up had to use a bunch of parts from that, which I thought was just really fun to watch. I get the sneaky feeling. He's never said this explicitly that I'm aware of, but I get the feeling that part of why he gets so frustrated by Hollywood is people keep telling him, you can't do this, it's too expensive. He paid for all the pre-production work on the creature because he wanted it done right and he didn't want somebody breathing down his neck saying, you can't do that, it's too expensive. Yeah, and also nobody rushing him. Yeah. Yeah, and he did everything he could to keep the cost as low as he could so he could do what he wanted to do. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, which is great. That is that is an approach that I love, the idea of directors who know how to budget and how to not cut corners but get the most out of what they have. The Mummy cost... They don't even know how much it costs. Look at that. Between 125 and 195 million. That's a, that's a big that's 70 million. That's another film you've misplaced in there. And it made 409 million, <laughs> which isn't terrible. It's the shape. I mean, it's it's obviously not what they wanted since they scrapped the whole endeavor, but we'll see. Um, and the shape of water cost 19 million. Oh my god! You can make the shape of water three times for the amount three of money. And a half times. For the amount of money they don't know whether they spent or not on the money. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. One of one of the I forget if it was something I read or if it was in one of the behind the scenes things, but they said that it was a sixty million dollar movie done on a nineteen million dollar budget, and some of the people were just incredulous that that was even possible. Apparently, it was. Well, that's yeah. Ten multiplier. 
And it made 195.2 million with all those Oscar nominations. Still didn't get it even to half as much as The Mummy got it. It well, didn't even get to half as much as The Mummy's apparently dismal box office. Yeah, but this is the AAA games it's industry. The, it's the budget comparison, though. Look at how much they made in comparison to how much it cost. I know. I just said the AAA games industry. They make it that expensive on purpose. Their only way of playing the game is to make it obscenely expensive and then to require triple obscene expense back well if you make a piece of shit that's what's going to happen you're going to go oh god our whole dark universe doesn't work because it's got a foundation of fluff yes and sand yes it has sorry just didn't mean to scream there (laughs) it's okay get it out okay (laughs) so um Eliza has a deep, deep connection to water that is established obviously at the very beginning she immediately gets in the bath and immediately masturbates I believe to convey from the get-go, that she is a sexual being and that this is not going to come out of nowhere, that that, that she is uh, a, a woman who knows exactly what she wants and needs, at least in this regard, so that when she decides she wants something, we trust her. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely part of it. There's there's a... I believe, yeah, just, you know, it's just my reading on it. So. There are a handful of films in which this particular activity is portrayed it's always in the bath have you noticed it's because i suppose it's easy no, to hide. in ken russell's the devils it's not oh i haven't seen the devils oh you should amanda okay. donahue outstanding fair enough <laughs> um all right it's usually in the bath um uh, joan allen in pleasantville uh sharon stone in sliver um and this one and I really appreciated the fact that it's, to me, when it happens, it's an acknowledgement Oh, it's, of, a, it's not Amanda Donahue, it's Vanessa Redgrave, I'm so sorry. I was going to say, age-wise, that doesn't seem to match up. So, continue, um, sorry. Yeah, it, it acknowledges her sexuality and shows that it is in her hands, as it were, that she's not... When she connects with him, it's not just about uh, a, a superficial sexual connection, and it's about it's more than that. But also the fact that she she enjoys masturbation. It's not being used to demonstrate how lonely she is, which is another thing that it's it's sometimes used for in fiction. Like, oh, if a girl's doing this, then it must be because she's. Terribly, terribly lonely. Well, and also, uh, so in a lot of horror films, it's even used. So it, it goes hand in hand with the idea of like the one who has sex dies. Mm. So it's like a woman who masturbates in like horror language, at least from a certain era. She's unclean. She's she's filthy she's in some way. Ah. Yeah, but in this, it's just she's just a lady. Mm. I mean, like, it's just everything. And I love the the brief moment of callback to that whenever she's in Giles's uh, uh, apartment and eating cornflakes. Mm. And he says, like, oh, those those were made to stop people from masturbating. And she, like, looks down at it and slowly sets the bowl down. She's like, well, don't want to eat them then. (laughs) And and then he says, oh, but it didn't work. And then she goes back to eating them. And there's just this wonderful moment that's like a callback to that that I thought was really funny. Also true. There were all sorts of uh, bland foods made in the late 19th, early 20th century. There were were graham crackers, yeah. Dr. Pepper, which were all like, oh, these are abstinence things. And it's like, honestly, I feel like it was that that they were told this is something that will help sell your stupid new product. And just like, oh, yeah, these are abstinence hula hoops. Do you want to know 
there something? No. <laughs> there is actually something that you can eat, and if you eat it in enough quantity, Celery, it does it? put you off sex. No, it's lettuce. Lettuce. Right. Lettuce oh. they oh, can't package and market. Yeah. So, oh. well, well um, Kellogg's, the actual guy who made cornflakes. By the way, I just was... glanced at my lettuce and put it down. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, Kel- the actual guy, Kellogg's, who made cornflakes was like a crazy person yeah. who like yes. believed that masturbation like killed you. And Dr. Pepper was actually originally made in a pharmacy to be uh, medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember what it was supposed to treat. It could have been masturbation or like, you know, uh, what is it? Hysteria. But... Mm. You know. They called it, it Dr. Something... Pepper because it made, they were trying to make him sound stern and uh, like he would be disapproving of your masturbation. Frankly, it makes me horny, so... <laughs> there that is. Oh. Yeah. Mm. Okay. But, but, a a yeah, chilly it's... Dr. Pepper and a nice cold Bakewell tart straight from the fridge. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... Anyway. Uh, back to the masturbation. <laughs> you screwed up, Dr. Pepper. <laughs> you fucked up epic fail. But what, what I really like about this is the, the the mundanity and the comfort of it, that it is, it's something that feels very natural, and, and also the fact that she has the timer. Now, I speculated on this. Is this... She, she baths and masturbates until the eggs are ready, and that's why she has the timer? Or is it just that she's only allowed this much self-care every day? Is it a race? Can she beat the race. eggs? Can she beat the eggs? Maybe, maybe it is. <laughs> She's going to go beat the eggs, if you know what I mean. Uh, I might start using that metaphor. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, <laughs> um, but anyway, now I just imagine. I really, really like, like this scene. Just for the record, this is sort of highlighting though that, like, as soon as sex gets into the conversation, it, things get a little bit more silly, a little bit more like, like less straight laced, I guess, and that's. There's definitely, like, you and me, we live in fairly, like, sexually repressive cultures. So seeing something like this depicted in a large film, especially one that ends up being, like, awarded, uh, you know, Oscars and what have you. Oh, they like sexual content. They like adult content. They like violence, swearing, and sex. That happens in all the big Oscar-nominated films. But, but not usually masturbation. Yeah. Like, masturbation seems like... Um, like sex is usually treated in like a somewhat silly way or in a way that's like kind of different at least cinema narratively and masturbation's like even more rare like it's usually used for a very specific purpose and the fact that in this movie it is used basically just as like a character moment that doesn't have any greater ramifications on who she is does isn't anything about the value judgment it's just you know this She's just a lady, just like you. We got silly talking about it because that's just kind of like the reaction that our cultures kind of necessitate to a certain extent just because of how like weirdly repressive and sex negative it is. I feel like our listeners would be like, they're talking extremely dryly about masturbation, masturbation, and I feel uncomfortable. Like, could someone make a joke, please? Yeah, and that's the but other that's thing. That's the thing, that's the point. And, and the, the fact that it's, it's all for her this is not something that's being framed in a kind of salacious this is for the viewer way you don't really see anything you know what's happening but you don't you don't it's not for titillation purposes it's not for anything other than to show that this is her and this is what she does for fun and also specifically that it's in the water that uh it, it reinforces that connection to yeah. to water for and, her and she's yeah she's effectively yeah. having sex with water. With yes, in a way. With the assistance of. 
water. Yeah. <laughs> One other thing about this whole intro section, by the way, um, the the green and the the teal rather is obviously very mm. prominent, and I was incredibly impressed again with how Del Toro manages to make green warm. Mm. Because usually it's it's not it's not exactly a cold colour, although teal does tend to be. Um, but green is usually very neutral, and this there's a there's a golden uh, thread almost that runs through the the mm. green in this. You can run the risk of uh, making everything feel institutionalised with green as well, mm. which yeah. well the, the teal he's used in the past to indicate the. Um, sort of a, colder, a, steely. Yeah, although that's again that's starting to get a bit more steely blue. But mm. he, the, the spectrum is is getting its range here. Yeah, because the other instance of teal in the movie is the Cadillac that Strickland purchases, mm. Mm. and that's when he's starting to like get the weird infatuation with Eliza, and it like immediately has to be damaged because of like how wrong that is. Mm. Oh, that's really good. There's, I mean, there's teal everywhere in the film. It's, it's different shades of greenish blue, and in fact, um, the uh, the Cadillac Cadillac seller corrects him and says, "This isn't green; it's teal." Just to um, yeah uh, emphasize that this is the uh, the shade. He's uh, this shades of this is what has have been the the palette we've been seeing. Mm. Her neighbor Giles, played by Richard Jenkins, who is a fantastic character actor and is all like, I've never seen a film where he's not great. He's always funny, even in bad films. Uh, have, you, have you ever seen Flirting with Disaster? I have not. He's great in that. Um, but Giles's job is as a uh, advertising illustrator, and it seems like he's come to this from another profession. And he's try- like, this is just my interpretation. He's trying to get his skills to work in advertising. And advertising is pushing the way of uh, photographs. So he's told to go away, uh, draw, you know, and paint something lovingly, carefully, to, to just capture it perfectly, but in a way that is difficult to change. It requires work to change. And then he comes back, he delivers his art that he has worked so hard on, and they go, eh. And then they pass it back to him and go, that jello should really be green. So he has to go away, paint a completely different jello, and then add that to the picture. This is Drew Strutzen, my favourite poster artist. He worked for uh, with Del Toro for several of his films. Uh, he did the Hellboy poster that is currently adorning my wall in a canvas. This, this beautiful thing that never ended up being used for the actual main promotion of the film he did Hellboy 2, he did Pan's Labyrinth as well, Uh, he did Back to the Future, he did the Star Wars films, Uh, not all of the early posters but from the the mid 90s onwards, from the special editions onwards it was all Drew Strutzen Mm. at the time Strutzen uh, was working with Del Toro was the time when in the early to mid 2000s movie posters were going the way of Photoshop and the very specifically the first Harry Potter poster was painted by Drew and then when the DVD came out they changed that and turned that into the Photoshop version then the second poster was painted by Drew but never got used at all even for theatrical posters it was just the uh, the Photoshop version which ended up uh, like a variation on that for the DVD cover and from then on they never asked Drew back. They never used his work on that. And there was a lot of cases of Drew making the poster and it never got used. And 
at that stage, it, it, it becomes a case of all of this work is going into an art form that nobody actually seems to prize all that much, that is becoming increasingly niche in its uh, appreciation. Uh, because it's so easy, it's so versatile to work with Photoshop, you can control absolutely every uh, aspect of it. What you create with Photoshop, it's a bunch of young, pale people looking directly at the camera in a grim fashion. And every fucking poster looks exactly the fucking same. And you can change the lighting, but it's still a bunch of young, pale, white people staring at you. And it's always the same. The covers of my books, the New Century books are little tributes to Strutzen's work. The the way Abby's cowboy hat is in uh, Secret Rooms is Indiana Jones's fedora in um, Last Crusade. I am one of the people that adores this measure of, of poster art, and there is something bittersweet and sad about its decline. And there's a little bit of a comeback on it that you know certain smaller films where they're, 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 the studios are less kind of leaning on them for, for this sort of identical dimension films level of, of just will give us the same heads looking at each uh, at the, the camera are able to do slightly more esoteric posters and those really stand out because when everything looks homogenized the thing that is special suddenly looks so much more eye-catching and Drew was doing his posters at a time when he did Hook, he did Big Trouble in Little China. This was at a time when almost every cover was painted because just a photograph of Freddy Krueger standing in a doorway wasn't going to sell the film. They had to give you a mystery and a fantasy of like a... Really what they were showing you on the posters was the mood of the film. A pulp novel-style flash of character in costume in setting. And within our lifetime, that changed to simply a photographic pledge of which actor is in this movie. But what Giles is experiencing is the decline of uh, painted art in the 60s at a time when they were like, let's just make it photographs and let's just make it easily accessible. Mm. And there's something of the old world ebbing away that, uh, that has that level of Tolkien melancholy about it well it's i think because in giles case it is literally ebbing away from him the studio he goes to with the art he used to work for them Um, he's coming back after a period of having been fired and trying to get them interested in his work again and gets rejected so i think that builds on his the, the themes of his character of that clinging to the old days which mm. he does through the musicals um, which he's you know he's trying to be himself by surrounding himself with memories and nostalgia to a point mm. and I think that that whole let's go after the, the photograph thing there was that sense in the 60s of everything had to be like ultra modern everything had to be made of plastic everything had to be bright and shiny and and so colourful it couldn't possibly be natural. It's big, it's now, it's wow. And And how. (laughs) (laughs) And even just the cars, they they couldn't just be practical automobiles that you could drive, they had to be these giant gas guzzlers that were 10 feet wide and 20 feet long and just announced to the world when you're on the freeway, I am here, get out of my way. Yeah, with the with the weird fins at the back, and the whole idea is like you're driving to the future, and 
Yeah, and I'm I'm a futurist. I, I understand the 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 idea of progress being very very important, but this appeared to be that kind of futurism at the expense of all tradition, where they just stamp on it. Uh, it was also a futurism because it's a very specific kind of futurism from that time period that was, shall we say, shallow as fuck. Well, I mean, yeah, but also very ignorant of a vast swathe of the population. Yeah. It was a very, like, cultural default version of it. Like, that it was a real fake kind of America that couldn't possibly be maintained or, like, acquired, but it was being sold. I mean, that's like, uh, what the heck's the general guy's name? He, at one point, he even says, like, no, that's an export. Like, mm-hmm we give that to everybody else like we don't like that's it's all a lie it's all superficial it's Um, uh the uh the idea of the nuclear family that was being peddled at this point like post post war it was just right father runs the house mother runs the children the children are dutiful the the lawn is perfectly mown and and you live in suburbia and you commute to the city and you are a good american who does his job and we will prosper we shall prosper remember the uh, great depression you don't want that again so we're going to keep moving forwards yeah but this yeah. is this is the thing what that picture doesn't tell you is that father drinks mother is on medication <laughs> to stop her from going crazy there's plastic there's... on our furniture to keep it neat and clean and the kids can't do move breathe feel anything because they're being convinced that they have to fit in with this this ideal you know put, let's portray this perfect sense of who we are i always had it in my head that, that there were certain parts of america that were obsessed with this sort of late 50s early 60s image um, and they wanted to maintain that forever hmm. it's only relatively recently that i've come to grasp that that never existed yeah. it was only in the advertisements it was a lie that was peddled while the family gathered around a jello and looked at it with admiration kind of blissful not especially passionate admiration while they were also worried about ducking and covering because the bomb was hovering over their heads this let's keep looking at the jello so that we don't look up uh, and the lie that was perpetuated here is still being clung to like this is the america that is disappearing with the coal mines we've got to bring it back bring the coal mines back bring the lie back bring this back we have to go back to this yeah bring back the thing that never existed okay shove your head back in the womb boys (laughs) i think i saw a video like that once anyway um the the thing about it is it's it's uh, it's an example. It's like a prototypical example of the dangers of enculturation on the psyches of a population because um, it's saying this is what being an American is. This is what is going to be the best for us as a society for the future. It's that, you know, that nuclear family you just talked about. And oh, yeah, everyone's white. Like it's it's from a very specific standpoint that is hostile to anything that is outside of that but it's just as hostile to the people inside of it because you are giving up your own ideas wants desires and interests and personality in favor of adopting another set of those things that is being handed to you and somebody is saying this is the best version of this and if you do anything else that is inferior so do this thing and and it is it's just enculturation and it's really really bad and i just want to point out that that picture that giles paints is strickland's family 
down yeah. to the damn jello parfait because when she makes that parfait later after mm-hmm. he repaints that it is green yeah. and it looks exactly like that thing that he brings out because and they're so- buying into the image wholesale and when strickland comes home and he sits at his table he is fucking dead inside his yes. kids are like you know his, his, his son's like are there gonna be jetpacks in the future dad and he's like believe it son and it's like there's nothing going on yeah and, and his, his wife's like all horny for him but then everything in the bedroom ends up just being like you know mechanical by the books like this is what you're supposed to do this is what how you're supposed to act this is the kind of thing like twisted it, it and seems, ugly as fuck you know, and it, it just looks like something that they've done a million times because they're expected to and that is the way that they're supposed to i mean they're sexual deviants missionary with the lights on Hmm. um which (laughs) is a callback to a joke i made several episodes ago (laughs) (laughs) so these podcasts all take place in the same universe as well yeah i think it was the hellboy one when we talked about how nazis were were associated with kink oh of course yes um Speaking of green desserts, uh, the uh, the the pie shop that Giles frequents to uh, uh, chat up the uh, guy working there, and just to indicate uh, that he's very very lonely, to try to reach out to another person, to possibly just open up the the possibility that he might be able to make good on his desires. The there's no actual conversation going on between them. When he comes in and starts talking to this bozo, the guy immediately says, you want a key lime pie? And he, like, it's it's shown that he's got so many goddamn key lime pies in his um, uh, refrigerator that he, this guy must just now associate him subconsciously with, this is the guy who loves key lime pie. And because he never talks about it in any sense other than the entirely superficial, he never gets to actually assert who he is and is just buying into this same Which perpetuating. ties back into that same idea of what you really want, you must not talk about. Mm. Well, sorry, but that pie shop, I mean, so everything about it is superficial down to the guy's accent, all the way down to those key lime pie slices, because real key lime pie is not green. The, the, those are, like, jello... Uh, simulacra of key lime pies because they're that like sickly dark green and like that's why they're like oh they're they're horrendous they taste awful it's like because that's not it's not even what they're selling it as it's this synthetic approximation from people who say well this is what key lime pie should look like and they're selling it to people who are like that's key lime pie okay then but actual key lime pie is a fluffy yellow. Mm. Yeah, it's like a, it's it like a, like it's a very line. light green, but it's a very, it's much more like a yellow, and yeah. it's, it's the best pie in the world. And but it's light, and it's, it just slips down the tree, and and uh, people who live doesn't turn your tongue green. <laughs> people who live in in Miami and actually specialize in this stuff uh, would would look at that that pie and grind their teeth and clench their fists mm. at this abomination of a pie. Yeah, and it's a chain pie restaurant that serves, you know, some kind of just simulacra of what they're saying it is. It's just, ah, it's so perfect, like, exemplifying that society like we were just talking about. I love the way you describe this pie is rather sordid. <laughs> it's just such a great way of describing, like, his, his, the, the, the way he uh, uses words, he's like a little little poet when he talks about, uh, oh, toasted cocoa, a delight and a tragedy. 
He's got this sweet, sweet soul. And you got really annoyed with him, didn't you, Sharon? You were, you were like, I want to shake this guy. It, it wasn't so much... Well, yeah, I did a bit. I said if if I was her, I'd slap him, and then she did. She does slap him. <laughs> so that's okay. Why'd you but, hit no, me? No, no, no. It's, it's, it's just the fact that he is... He is kind and caring, and he loves her. But he is weak. Hmm. And... There is a little bit of a parallel with Russian spy whose surname I can't pronounce. Dimitri? Dimi- uh, Dimitri's first name, I think. Yeah, yeah, whatever. D- Dimitri Mozenkov. Mozenkov, that's it. Oh, Hofstetter Hof- <laughs> is the name he's going by. But Bob. He, is, he is a good man, but he is weak, and he hasn't been true to his his own self and his own ideals because he's gone along with what they've asked him to do and um, it's as you pointed out though Alex it's Giles has an arc yes there he has a moment of weakness but he does come back from that so yeah, he, my- he runs away from her when she begs him for help and everything falls apart from him because he realizes that the one person who is true and genuine in his life is the person he should be putting all of his energy into mm-hmm. rather than chasing these these facsimiles mm-hmm. and and, and- and that comes back at the very end where, like, not only has he moved past that, where, but he straight up punches Strickland in the face, mm. which is, like, one of my favorite little moments at the end where, you know, this guy who's been very soft-spoken, very intellectual, if you will, excuse the dog whistle reference to homosexuality, and um, just smacks in the face what is essentially the poster child for, like, white straight America and it just makes me happy every time and ultimately my frustration with characters who um, either suppress or straight out betray their true selves in order to try and fit in with a societal ideal comes from a place of deep shame because that's what I have done in my life (laughs) and I've hidden stroke lied about who I am because it fits better with the people that I'm around. But more like Giles and unlike Daisy in The Great Gatsby, you've actually come back. You've actually said said to yourself, no, I'm going to do the right thing here. I would like to think so. Yeah. But I do need to be more patient and kinder with people who haven't been able to do that yet. Yeah, we should be. At the same time, it's it's never going to not bother the hell out of me when people don't do the right thing and then just wander off and Terrible things happen because they wander off. Mm. Okay, uh, there's an Amelie-like feel to this, like from the, like from the beginning music by the the wonderful Alexander Desplat. It's got this kind of French sensibility with the, 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 the there's like an accordion feel in there in the in the background, and just the way she uh, walks and talks and the kooky and quirky things that she does. It's it's got that in there, and also um, and the masturbation. Oh yes, well actually, there's, uh, Emily's not about masturbation. It does have that multiple orgasm scene from multiple people, though. Mm. Oh, are so, they, is they all participating in? Yeah, they're not all jacking it. They're all sex. everyone's okay. having sex, and you just see. Bunch of orgasms. But Jean-Pierre Genet, director of Amelie, also directed Alien Resurrection, that film that Guillermo del Toro was almost going to direct, and they do have kind of a similar aesthetic when it comes like have you ever seen City of Lost Children it's got this 
greasy, steampunky, bioshocky feel to it okay. as well. Mm-hmm. So this feels like the most jeune of Del Toro's films in that okay. regard. Is, is that aesthetic start with Ron Perlman and work out from there? You know what? City of Lost Children and uh, Hellboy and um, Alien Resurrection all got Ron Perlman in them. Uh, so, so yeah, it has that sort of quirky, um, you know, lady who is kind because she comes across as very kind. There aren't many people she can be kind to because everyone's getting on so hard with their daily routine that they tune her out entirely. And she doesn't seem to be massively particularly interested in them. But the first person that she sees she could be kind to is the creature. There is, I think, very much a feeling of her life being repetitive and everything's measured out in units of time. You've got the calendar on the wall, you've got mm. the egg timer, you've got the repeated references to the clock and the watch and the um, the punch clock that they use when they, they start work. Um, and it's, it's not... It's boring. It's not that it's meaningless, but it's not meaningful. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's uh, she's not desperately uncomfortable like she she's uncomfortable in her own skin but she's not unhappy being who she is. Mm. I don't I don't necessarily think she's uncomfortable in her own skin. She's pissed off with how everybody well, no, she's uncomfortable with how everybody treats her own skin. Yeah. She's treated as a woman and less than a woman. Mm. Yeah. Especially by Strickland, mm. who also treats Zelda as less than a woman. Yeah. <sighs> Well, she's not just a woman. She's also, I mean, technically disabled, yeah. be, being mute. So but that, That's what I mean. She's treated by uh, like a woman the way that they would treat women in the 60s, but less than that mm. in that you're disabled and you're a person of colour, so I barely even have to talk to you. Yeah, and then you bring in the class element as well in that they're the help. Yeah. Like, why am I even bothering? Dude, the help knows everything that goes on in this place. That's why you're bothering. Yeah. <laughs> you want to know what really goes on? Ask the service people. The eyes and ears of this institution, my friend. Absolutely. And they pee in your soup. Indeed. Speaking of pee, um, <laughs> Del Toro's uh, uh, deals about uh, just under half of his films have had Pixar-style villains who are champions of the system. This, Pan's Labyrinth, Blade Two, Kronos, you know, the most well-to-do uh, a member of society in all of these films is the villain. Uh, in the case of uh, Strickland, there is an incredibly economical scene as he's introduced uh, when with, when he comes in, washes his hands, talks to the ladies, like interrupts their conversation, dominates them whilst peeing, and then eats candy without washing his hands and tells them that washing his hands would have been a sign of weakness. Also brings attention to his horrible um, Alabama howdy-do stick and talks about it in uh, detail as though anybody could possibly give a fuck. It's it's an implement for inflicting violence, and he's very casual about it. So in this very short scene, we are utterly appalled by him, and at the same time, we know everything about him. Yeah, I mean, even that that whole thing of like, 
A man either washes their hands before they use the bathroom or after, not both times, like that's a sign of weakness, is like such a weird, arbitrary thing to live by. Yeah. It fits so perfectly with the concept that like he is living by a model of societal standards that are themselves nonsensical, but he believes them. Effectively broken. He was told that by someone who was just as broken as him. I think there's another layer to that though as well his when uh, when he goes home and has sex with his wife she tells him to go and wash his hands before uh-huh. i think his not washing his hands after he pees is a little act of rebellion do you think he's just been doing that since he's been married? I think he's been doing that his whole fucking life because his stupid dad told him that shit. Okay. She says wash your hands because they smell of piss. He has to wash his hands because otherwise she's like get them off me Jesus Christ. They stink of piss because when he shakes his penis, he gets piss on his hands and doesn't wash it off and then eats candy in front of them. Oh, it's disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> and then later on, it's not just the piss, it's also the gangrene. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that too. That's not coming off with soap and water. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, I, 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 I believe she has accepted about him that he won't wash his hands after he goes to the bathroom. But she's like, if you're going to have sex with me, at least have the decency of washing the piss off. <sighs> and oh your penis. God. So, I, I honestly, I, I felt um, sorry for her because she's married to this this dreadful, dreadful guy, and she seems to be sort of like trying to play her part. Mm. But it's a limited sympathy because, at the same time, like how how could you be with this person when he was younger and go now that that's marriage material and not be really indoctrinated into this whole societal that's, thing that's already. that's the point, isn't it? Strickland's position in this fake society that doesn't really exist, this uh, this export, that we tell this ourselves. image that, we, that, that is being peddled, um, he's a catch in that particular uh, oh, yeah. scene. He's got a government job, um, he's obviously reasonably well off, he says he feels like he should have a new car, and she agrees. Now that means that they have car money just lying around. Hmm. He's assertive, he's powerful, he's the very model of what a man is supposed to be. Hmm. And it's, you know, it's a depiction of masculinity that is, here it comes, toxic, but for her, and she's depicted very, you know, she's in like, what, two scenes, maybe three scenes? Hmm. So she's kind of a non-character. She's not really given anything to do. So she's more there to like inform on him, Hmm. just like the kids are. Um, So I couldn't feel sorry for her because she was more like a function of of him rather than anything else. But I felt sorry for her in the figurative sense. Indeed. Indeed, in the way that I felt sorry for all women married to disgusting pigmen oh, like that. That ain't ending happily. His masculinity is not just toxic, it's gangrenous, as we've established. Yeah. Yeah. As Very, very true. Really, I'm just sorry. I just feel sorry for anybody around Michael Shannon in any film he's in, apparently, because that's just what he does. I, I hear he's really nice in real life. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's what I hear, too, but... <sighs> but the funny thing <laughs> he's is, the real monster of that monster movie. I've seen I've seen him in public too. I saw him with his kid once, and he was being really sweet. Like I saw, you him, like, break your fucking neck, Junior. <laughs> no, he had <laughs> he had his kid on his shoulders, which made him twenty nine feet tall. 
Of course. Because he's exactly 26 feet tall. And he looked very nice. And I was like, wow, that's so weird to see Michael Shannon, a noted terrifying person, <laughs> be really sweet and nice with his kid. And it must be quite difficult just, just trying to sort of get the creep factor out so that you can just engage with him in conversation to, to find that lovely fellow underneath. I will say he is really great in Midnight Special that sci-fi film that no one's seen whilst everyone was lamenting the fact that they don't make original sci-fi there's no sci-fi. original sci-fi did there you is. see Midnight Special? No, no then shut up go see it, uh, it, it it's really good and he's oddly miscast sort of because he's a caring father and it's again like you know I've got to take this boy out to the woods and you're like oh god that poor boy and it's like no I'm trying to set him free what are you, what? <laughs> god um, Do you know if Michael Shannon had been cast as um, uh, Michael Rooker's character in Guardians, we'd have been terrified for Peter's life the whole way through. He may have been your father, boy, but he ain't your daddy. It's like, get away from me, you old blue psycho! Oh god, I don't want to ever think about Michael Shannon saying the word daddy. <laughs> no, no, that's bad. So uh, yeah, he uh, he mentions a god made god mad man in his own image. Sorry, he looks like me. There's quite a few references to the idea that he's. Uh, this is quite blunt in terms of uh, of of toxic masculinity. The idea that man has made himself as god on earth and figures himself as powerful as a god, and he says that you know it looks like me, may even look a bit like you to Zelda. Well, maybe more like me. And it's like, oh, for fuck's sake, dude. <laughs> It's almost like he said that just so he could take it back. Yeah, and it's also it should be you know pointed out that that's very exemplary of uh, how we talked about fascism in the yeah. Devil's Backbone. Bingo. That it's the idea of like this is peak humanity is mm. this like strong white man. It, it's also like the, the the someone like like Voldemort who's just totally psychopathically. Uh, what is it? I, I don't want to use the word psychopathic if that's offensive to people who um, suffer from psychosis. Well, it's, it's more uh, narcissism. Yeah. I think comes closer. He he's a narcissistic sociopath. Like he he cannot Can feel say, yeah. empathy. Okay, so empathy free narcissistic sociopath sociopathy. It is fucking rife right now. Mm. And uh, yeah, the the, um, the 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 god imagery um, obviously comes to a close at the end when uh, he says, oh "My God, you're you're <laughs> you're a god," uh, to uh, uh, the creature. And uh, when the general gives him his marching orders, the the speech he gives him, I mean, this general is the grandfather of toxic masculinity. Like you, you will be in another world entirely. You will be undone. That speech is Lovecraftian. It's like he was possessed by a demon for a short while. The way he's the way he's talking there. You will be so laid low as to no longer exist on this planet. It's so. It's almost flowery for for someone like that to use. You know, I, I, that's a, a, a scenario where the guy would would say. You'd best square your ass away and start shitting me Tiffany cufflinks or something to that effect of uh, Gunnery Sergeant Hartman. That he would just be very, very blunt. This is a situation that has to get unfucked right now. But he goes to disturbing lengths to describe the oblivion that uh, Strickland will find himself in. And there is a direct parallel in the Del Toro universe. Mm -hmm. He will not even know your name. Yeah. Uh, that's good. That's because good. I mean, that would. He is Captain mm. Vidal. That was the only scene that I felt 
any kind of emotion other than disgust for Strickland. Because in that scene, he's like, it's not just, you know, oh, you need to unfuck this right now. It's, hey, that lie you've been telling yourself about where your self-worth comes from, I'm going to tear that all down right now in the most specific, flowery, extravagant way. And it, it was like, a little uncomfortable to watch just how much he squirmed like during it and how like off put he was i mean then he just goes out to like no i will reaffirm this thing but like it's that moment where it's just like oh shit that oblivion that he just was looking into has been there the whole time it's the rotting core of the whole lie that he's been feeding himself the lie of the culture the lie of that superficiality and it's now coming out again which is also visually depicted by his fingers becoming more gangrenous as time goes on, where he's literally rotting. Absolutely. And that that facet of toxic masculinity, and I've talked about this before, it is so poisonous to the men that it's engendered in because the the process of turning boys into tools and soldiers is to tear their sense of self out and then you fill it with whatever you want to fill it with and then if you want to crush them all you've got to do is take away the fake thing that you gave them to to try and prop up their sense of self they have nothing else you wouldn't let them have anything else and in the end his superficiality is laid low by a superfish ah uh, <laughs> sorry. It is important while we're feeling sorry for this uh, poor victim of uh, uh, and arbiter of toxic masculinity that while he's rotting, uh, he mentions to this general earlier on uh, that he lost two of his fingers, but he's still got uh, his thumb, his trigger finger, and his pussy finger. And when he interacts with his wife, it's only that. She is basically to him just the thing he has sex on. The trophy that looks after his kids. He doesn't engage with her or talk to her ever at all he about anything. He tries to silence her. She's trying to kind of engage Bingo. with it. And he tells her to shut up and tries to put his hand over her mouth. Yeah. And and the, the thumps of the bed against the wall blend directly into the machinery of the next scene. And it, it's to like exemplify that like this is a mechanical automated process. It is not human. It is just a machine. Like, She's a vagina with tits that makes jello. Mm. And, and 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 he is just like a dick to go in that vagina, like in a sense. So yeah, this is a very. I mean, this is a blunt film. The way I mean, there's beautiful delicacy throughout, but the themes are of very strong and very like you know hammered but just to to, uh, extend on that slightly where Eliza embraces water and so it becomes for her both a vessel for emotion and for healing Strickland rejects it he won't even wash his hands and therefore he is not able to partake of the potential for healing that could be there in his life and in losing his uh, other two fingers, he uh, dismisses the fact that one of those fingers just happened to have the ring around it. The ring was still on it when Eliza found it. That's everything connected to the expression of love that you declared in front of your family and friends in a hollow, false fashion just to have this lifestyle. 
You didn't invest any real part of yourself into this marriage. So we can talk about Eliza and the creature now, because when, when she meets him, it's a very um, uh, visually resplendent form of communication between the two of them. They, they communicate in looks, and she teaches him uh, a language of gestures. But you said that that's not actually ASL, not American Apparently Sign Language? Apparently it's, it's not ASL that she's using in the film. I don't know what it is, whether it's British Sign Language, because Sally Hawkins is British, it's possible that's what she learned. It's possible that it's a, a form of sign language that, within the confines of the film, uh, Eliza devised and managed to teach... Giles and Zelda how to understand her form of expression. Ah. Uh, doesn't she use ASL for one scene when she's telling Strickland fuck you? Uh, for the finger spelling, yeah, I believe she does, yeah. Yeah, so it makes me think, because I know that, uh, oh boy, I don't know much about uh, ASL users, but I, I feel like there's like almost dialects. Mm where like the different motions are different like in different areas not necessarily like strictly like america british it's also like different parts of the country yeah there's there's gestures that aren't standardized and there's things that might be used in you know words that you might use in some areas but you just wouldn't they wouldn't crop up in others so yeah people adapt their own but so much of uh of deaf communication is about it it's not limited to the gestures that you're making with your hands it's facial expression can add tone and depth to what you're saying and stance and um it's it, there's a whole sort of body language incorporated into it as well mm. the whole thing reminded me of tiger's eye and in, in terms of um two creatures from different species and different worlds communicating with each other learning in in tiger's eye they pretty much have to make up the language not on the spot, it took them days and weeks eventually. Uh, but the it was based on the need to communicate. And when the need to communicate is there, the language will be created, which is an uh, artifact of intelligence. And Doug Jones, uh, I would say this was the performance of his career because it's phenomenal. I think I ever so slightly prefer him as Abe in Hellboy 2. I think principally because Abe is more the sort of person I'd want to hang out with, I feel like the creature in this would be a little dangerous to be around. That doesn't make it any less of a fantastic, phenomenal performance. Though I think still at the top of that list for me is the Angel of Death. I think it, I, can, I can warm to Abe a little more than I can to the, the creature in this. But it's kind of like Andy Serkis being the difference between Gollum and uh, uh, Caesar. They're both amazing physical performances. Mm. Or Kong and Caesar. I don't know if you watched the making of, of the suit that he wears, but... Oh, yes. like, yeah. Oh, it's fascinating he, how he's talking about, oh, yeah, it only takes two and a half hours to put this one on. I don't know how they did it. Yeah. And... Uh, That's a vacation for Doug Jones. He's just so used to sitting there for hours and hours and hours while latex gets glued on. Yeah, and the fact that the the suit ended up, it absorbed water, Mm. so whenever he'd be trying to get out of the tubs and stuff, it would be like 70 pounds heavier is what he said. It's Uh, just, ugh. Again, fantastic use of CG here. The, uh, the, The suit, the prosthetics of it look so chunky and real. The eyes were augmented, as were some of the more detailed movements. Touched up on the top of the face and occasionally at the jaw. 
but it's seamless. I spent the whole movie thinking that that was just really fantastic, um, practical, and just felt, you know, this is, I just felt Jones's performance. I felt the soul of the creature through that. Mm. I stopped thinking about how they were doing it, which is the best response yeah. to effects. Absolutely. And I think part of that, and again, this is so much credit to the, the people who did the visual effects, they match the facial expressions to what Doug Jones is doing with his body. There is a consistency from head to foot that makes everything feel as of one piece. Hmm. And the music that come that uh, occurs uh, in uh, when she first meets him, uh, that da, 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 that is Desplat taking the original creature from the Black Lagoon, the kind of lurking theme, which eventually ended up crescendoing and da da da, and just making it into a sort of a darker, more mysterious, more emotional side of it because. To Del Toro, it was always a case of, what if rather than just going, ah, the uh, leading lady was kind of into it, like really into it when the monster showed her attention. And uh, we watched the Lindsay Ellis video on uh, My Monster Boyfriend uh, about how this has been going on for a long, long time. Pretty much all of the original monster stories were dark romances of some capacity. I mean, sometimes the uh, romance was ever so slightly removed, like the original Bram Stoker's Dracula, that, that fascination he had with Mina, wouldn't really come to a head until nearly a hundred years later when Coppola kind of really pulled that one off. And the fascination she has with him as well. I mean, it, it is definitely there, and Dracula is, is sold as this dark... Uh, attractive on some level sexual where the humans are not prince um, I think with the original novel a lot of it is the fact that so much of it's told from other people's points of view yeah. if you had the whole thing from Mina's perspective that's exactly what I think you'd get someone needs to write that it's public domain, get on it and uh, obviously Beauty and the Beast is, a, is an absolutely seminal side of this one. And uh, the uh, the original Mummy, again, I think Bram Stoker wrote a version of that too. Mm. It's not new that we should find monsters appealing, even attractive. Sharon, do you want to field this one? Because you've done the whole Beauty and the Beast thing. I don't want to speak for women. It's, so. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not new, the appeal of the, um, the inverted commas beast and the, the idea that it unlocks something within that you didn't know was there. I mean, uh, Del Toro said he wanted to tell a story that was effectively a Beauty and the Beast tale, but where the beast didn't transform, Beauty did. And you keep talking about a version of that. There is, yeah, there has, I mean, I'm sure there are several, but I've, I've read a particular version of Beauty and the Beast where the Beast is this sort of panther-like cat humanoid, and when Beauty eventually decides that, yes, she does love him and she does want to go with him, um, he helps her to lick off her skin, and she finds that underneath she is this gorgeous, sleek 
tiger creature and they bound off together um, and that that element of that tale is again it's about this sort of unleashing of the true self which is the direct counterpoint to the society that's that's in this story of the fake self of the artificial construct of this is the image that we will tell you you have to be you have to look like um, and the the embracing the uh, the beast, the other, is a way of saying, well, actually, no, that's not who I am. I, I have this this part of me that demands to be satisfied, God damn it. Even if I have to do it in the bath. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like this might just be a good time to, to mention another conversation that we had before this, Alex. Mm-hmm. Um, because the idea was floated that perhaps this is a good allegory for a trans person uh, or the trans experience. And I, we, we went back and forth on it, but I wanted to just expand on the idea a little bit more because it seems like it would be, it would fit very nicely that like, you know, uh, trying to come out from this oppressive, like understanding to be your true self and all that kind of thing. But, and this is definitely a story about, uh, like, minority narratives or like the invisible people narratives i mean at one point they specifically say or in one of the background things that eliza zelda and giles are essentially one person that they like uh, eliza represents um disabled people zelda represents people of color and giles represents lgbt well L- really just g but still um <laughs> But, but you know, that's that's the general idea and that these people working together with, you know, a foreign national who's a scientist, uh, they actually like get one over on the quote unquote man, like in a sense, the literal man. And uh, like that's that's great, like the, this idea, but to ground it in any specific one of those as opposed to like the general idea of the minority experience or uh, whether that's racial minority or gender minority or sexuality minority or, you know, able minority that there ends up being some problems in that translation. And I just, you know, I wanted to talk about that just a, a little bit because the idea of this being a trans narrative would then imply that Eliza being like this trans, like human to, to fish person. Uh, the reason that that falls down from, for me a lot is that that means that, she is trying to be something that's not human and that can be very disheartening and very uh like hurtful in a way to a lot of trans people not me so much i mean i'm a damn furry like come on now transhumanism and transformation is like my jam but i know some other people who would be like who you know (laughs) appreciate humanity as a concept a bit more than i do i guess but um that's why most of these stories so like the little mermaid like i've heard a lot of trans critiques of that where she's trying to go from mermaid to human because that's like what she feels she is and that rings more true for a lot of people because the underlying message of a lot of trans media and a lot of the trans movement kind of things for for allyship is that we are just people that we are human just like you like we're not hiding anything and that really comes down to another problematic for part of this narrative for that purpose because uh 
an, an unfortunate side effect of the trans experience is that culturally they're seen as hiding things. They're seen as being inherently misleading. That's why in certain dark and shall we say dank corners of the internet, trans women are known as traps because they're there to reel in straight men and then trap them into an, oh no, it's a gay experience. Cause even though it's not, but they're yeah, problems. Um, and in, in this one, it even comes down to the point where, like, Strickland falling for Eliza and then being shut down and then, like, his immediate, like, attack on her feels – if you want to read it as a trans narrative, that feels way too much like a trans panic situation. And the underlying message of, like, well, not only is she trying to not be human because she's not human, but she's also misleading everyone else around her in trying to be what she wants to be. And, like, those are just messages that are damaging to, like, the trans community in general. I don't know if any of that made sense. It was, like, a little rambling, but it seemed like something to consider. Because, like, I, I think it could be a really empowering way to critique this. But you would have to kind of ignore some of the other messages that are out there that trans people deal with. Uh, and, and like the possible ramifications of like where the intersection lies. Mm. Yeah. No, I, I I think I understand what you're saying, and it's thank you, thank you for for giving us that perspective. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I, like I said, because even if you decided, okay, this is an expression of uh, interracial marriage, like interracial relationships, and you wanted to take it that way and do a critique in that direction, there's still some problems there saying like, oh, well, you know, the person that's not white is clearly a monster. Like there's still ways that that falls apart under closer examination, which is why I still think that the best critique for this that's at least not potentially troublesome is saying the general idea of like minority people versus the cultural default. It's, it's the other yeah, it's the other. It's all of them. It's Giles, it's Zelda, it's Eliza. It's all of them as a as a as a unit that it's all the people who aren't Strickland. So the way Zootopia is applicable to various levels of society that are shit on by the ones at the top. Mm, absolutely. And the point and the kind of the end play being that all of that united is successful is is it outnumbers the uh, the dominant and, and that there's strength there in that unity mm. because because of the unity Giles steps up and and I, I said earlier that he punched he actually hits him with like a with an oxygen tank thing just so like put your tweets down and um too late <laughs> I know I know no, we never get um actually we at on we are so lucky I have never been well actually by any of our listeners so yeah <laughs> thank you guys and girls and otherwise yeah but, but yeah that unity so giles like stands up to the literal man who he's terrified of because he's he's afraid for much of this movie but he finally like bravery isn't not being afraid bravery bravery is doing what you need to do even though you are afraid in spite of being afraid and that giles gets that through the unity with everybody else zelda stands up to strickland and refuses to give him the information even when he barges into her house and straight up threatens her life in her living room and it's her husband who caves who's like a non-entity in this story for them for every other part Mm. but zelda refuses to give in even though she's been very meek throughout most of the film and eliza her whole story is 
like, no, I have to do what I have to do. Like, I, I have to save this person and because uh, I love them. And even Dmitri, like, he's this you know Russian agent. He's working for the Russians. He's working in this lab. But in the end, he kind of shirks both of those cultural identities. And he aligns himself more to science, where he's like, no, I, like, I don't care... Like I, I will do whatever I will work for whoever as long as this creature this 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 wonderful beast that I just want to know better gets to live, and like he puts everything on the line to the point where he even dies for it, and and he transcends the cultural boundaries that he was originally defined by, and that's such a more powerful message to me than any individual character read of this piece. The whole spy master thing and the um, uh, juxtaposing Dimitri's boss with this five star general, uh, being that they're they're two middle managers uh, trying what they believe perceive to be the best for their countries, but it becomes increasingly apparent that both countries hate each other to the point where they will just they will destroy themselves if it will spite the other. They will certainly eliminate their own opportunity for knowledge mm. to spite the other. Mo, uh, exemplified in this brilliant line, we do not need them. We do not need to learn. We need America not to learn. Brilliant. And that is <laughs> achingly pertinent right now. Yeah, and in the end, he pays for it from both sides. He gets shot by the Russians, and then Strickland tortures and kills him. And there's there's a wonderful bit of theming because he gets shot through the the cheek, and Strickland hooks him like a fish hmm. and drags him over to the one side to torture the information out of him. Meanwhile, uh, Eliza shows defiance to Strickland when she says "fuck you." She is like she's going out of her way at that point to say, "I will not do." what you are ordering me to do she's she reminds me of mercedes in um pan's labyrinth and he's also doing it for love yeah uh there's there's so many parallels with pan's labyrinth that they a lot of del toro's films have the villains receive a terrible obvious wound to their uh face or body um, that persists throughout the film. So uh, in The Devil's Backbone, it was Jacinto's eyeball gets bloodshot and red, but that's nearer the end. It's just exemplary of, of the rage inside him. Rasputin's eyes get sucked out of his head, and they keep referring to it the whole way through the film. Vidal obviously has his horrible cheek wound, and Strickland has these fingers. But I think of all of them, I think Strickland's fingers are the ones that last the longest and upset the most people. Because it's like, you know, th th this, like, you're waiting for him to do something about them. When he starts, I, I can't even describe it. It's fucking nauseating. I, st I can't watch it. Yeah. I saw it the first time we watched it, and now I'm like, I don't need to see this again. I know what happens. That's it. But it's when he, when he finally pulls them off, it's so just like, ah, that is destroying yourself to achieve your aims. Um, and, and it, there's, there's just a rage in it. There's no sense of pain, really. It's, there's, there's no sense of, ah, God, I can't believe this has happened. No fear. It's just blind hatred that he's pushing through on this, whilst at the same time delivering to her a parable of Samson's strength. 
Oh, which is so creepy. But there is also a fundamental difference between all of those different, uh, like, wounds that you just described. Mm -hmm. Because uh, Jacinta gets that wound because of his own doing, the explosion. Or is it from the gunshot? It's kind of both. Because he gets beat up from a lot of things. But it's a direct act of defiance that, that causes it. Or or his direct actions, because he gets wounded a couple of times. Um uh, Rasputin gets his eyes sucked out because he doesn't need eyes to see for the uh, Ugdru Jihad. He opened a door and um, the door went, we'll have some eyes, thank you. Yeah, that's yeah. his sacrifice. Yes, exactly. I mean, yeah, of course. I mean, you know, you have to give some eyes to open a door, like the old saying says. Um, or one but, eye. Yeah, <laughs> but, but the still thing, it was his own action that caused it. And then uh, Videl, it, it was from an act of defiance. And there's these, like, really violent moments and Strickland gets his cut off from an act of defiance, but it's the slow burn of the gangrene and the rot mm. that's the real, uh, like, wound, the real visual element of it. And it's more like everybody else had damage done to their physical person that, that just ruined it, marred that perfect image that they were trying to set forth. And it's quick but, like that. And it's very quick. But for Strickland, it's almost like that wound of defiance that he got was to the veneer that he manifests around himself. And that crack in the shell that like uh, that he shows other people manifested in just this slow, creeping rot of showing the, the, the decay within that shell. And, and to the point where he just – he eventually tears them off in this rage because he just – hates being exposed to what he really is and that 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 it is a facade and that it is worthless and it's just ah, it, it's very uncomfortable but it's but it is such like a different slow burn on that same take to show a slightly different variation of that that theme and and oh it's it's very powerful i think and it also does have that streak of you brought this on yourself because I'm willing to bet if he'd kept his hands clean, the fingers would have had a better chance of reattaching. Oh. <laughs> oh. Um, <clears throat> what does red mean in this teal world? Because uh, around about the third act, uh, after she's finally had sex with uh, the creature and... Um, been very pleased about it the uh she starts uh, like she she's moving with a bounce in her step uh, eliza and starts wearing red shoes a red headband and then a red coat so what do you think the red can be interpreted as um well given that the only real splashes of red that we've had before this have been blood yeah there would seem to be a the obvious interpretation is is passion and life force, um, and I think if you put it in context of the the thing about her life being measured out in these very timed steps, that the red is her blood starting to flow again, her life force starting to pulse with more individuality, which with more uh, more sense of impulsiveness and something new and different than she's had before. Mm. I, I think it's her passion, it's her love that she's bringing forth because the red that she has, like the red in her shoes and the red in her jacket, is uh, a lot brighter than the red of the blood that we saw before. Mm. 
because uh, the blood that we saw before was always very upsetting, but it was a very dark kind of of red. Except the original splash in the bathroom, which in the 4K version is an incredibly vivid orange. Yeah. Huh. That could just be because we got it on HDR, and, and so any reds will pop. But, um, yeah, like you just you notice colours like that in... Uh, the, the other the red is, of course, that red jello pudding at the beginning, mm-hmm. which gets uh, turned around. But, um, yeah, the... Uh, I, I, I would agree. I think it's, uh, it's that's an expression of her passion. The fact that she's got red shoes as well t- ties into the red shoes mm. that you've mentioned already. Yeah. If you watch the scant extras, and I really wish this had a commentary, by the way, maybe there'll be a Criterion edition for you Americans to listen to. I'll let you know how good it is. Okay. Um, but uh, Sally Hawkins, when, the, uh, when she talks about it in these little interview vignettes, is crying. Because she loves this story so much. She's so connected to it. Sally Hawkins, by the way, is a treasure. If you've ever seen uh, Happy Go Lucky or the Paddington films or uh, Made in Dagenham, she never gives it anything less than 120%. Mm. She's amazing. Again, like Richard Jenkins, uh, Giles, her neighbour, I've never seen her be bad in anything. She's just fantastic. Mm. Uh, But I I just want to throw superlatives out. What she does... uh, She's tasked with a film she can't speak, so she has to be incredibly physically expressive. This is like almost an Andy Serkis level of, um, of, of physical performance, just as much as Doug Jones, in fact. In fact, more, because she has to interact in so many other different capacities. And she has to be physically uh, delicately expressive in times that where we just catch little nuances and little touches and... Um, we have to gather so much about her by the way she moves. And she's just got that down. Did you say that she'd written a story about a mermaid who didn't realise she, she was a mermaid? Was, when um, Del Toro was uh, started working on this, he had certain actors in mind and she was one of them. And when he went to talk to her about it, she'd been devising a story of her own, yeah, about a, a mermaid who didn't know she was a mermaid. Mm. And like I said, I think that that building block at the beginning, showing her masturbating, laying down, this is somebody who knows what they want, so you're going to have to trust her when she gets the hots for this fish guy. This is something that's coming from an instinctual place that she will follow. Mm, Yeah, And and that it's drawing her towards uh, a door through love and through connection, the same way that in uh, Pan's Labyrinth, Ophelia is drawn by... This idea of her, that's her family over in that other world, that other kingdom that she doesn't have anymore. Mm. I don't know if I've mentioned Del Toro's relationship with art. When he was growing up, he had uh, the history of art in these giant books to read through as a kid, and he poured through that and, and got and absorbed a hell of a lot uh, on it. And um, he conveys that through detail. Uh, I think uh, he, he talks about symbologists in his um, uh, notebooks and uh, how rather than just the superficial detail, they're hiding messages within their, their artwork. And, and so every single one of these films that we've talked about, there's representation within objects, within um, uh, even simply colours or repeating themes and, and motifs that are keyed into each other throughout the film. So maybe one of the reasons why he's such an accomplished director is he is effectively a painter. 
He's a masterful painter who just paints frame after frame after frame for us to look at and then puts them in sequence. And he has just some of the best people in the world to help him out with this. And I'm really going to miss this, honestly. He can't make his next film fast enough. I really can't wait to get back on this, uh, to get back on the GDT train. Um, As we get to the end here, because I don't think we necessarily need to talk about the the jailbreak and the the aquatic sex unless did did you want to any of that stuff oh i mean we could talk about aquatics no (laughs) (laughs) i mean the 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 jailbreak is is wonderful parts planning and improvisation and then the sex scene is just like tender but also like like aggressive in a way like she she really goes in like the moment where she decides no i'm going to climb into this bathtub it's just like weirdly cathartic and it's just i don't know it's it's incredibly well shot it's incredibly well framed it's incredibly well done but it is what it is kind of thing yeah there's a scene which turned up in the uh, um, extras that i was like that wasn't in the film was it she gets him to come into the bedroom and lie down on the double bed and i can only presume that was before the sex scene in the bathroom i think that's her saying okay this is the human world do you want to try this side of things? And he's very uncomfortable with it. So she thinks to herself, in conclusion, actually, if, if this is what he wants, it's actually what I've been wanting as well, so let's just go with this. So I suppose it was a concession to her attempting to be normal. Inverted hmm. commas. Inverted commas. Hmm. <laughs> actually, in uh, that does tie in with something else that I wanted to mention, which is in that wonderful speech that she, she gives to Giles about how he doesn't know how she is incomplete. Um, he does not know what I lack. Yeah. Now, first off, I love the fact that that mirrors that she drew him to her with things that are incomplete. An egg with its shell on that still needs to be peeled. She turns the music off to get him to come and then starts it again as a reward. Um, so that, like, she, that's the power of three. She's the third in- incomplete thing. However, Eliza is not incomplete. She communicates fine. She has the speech that she has. It's that, again, that... Uh, artificial image obsessed fixated on the standard society the world has told her she's that she's she's incomplete yeah Yeah. but as we said seen her day-to-day life she is happy being who she is the uncomfortableness is that sense of feeling inside they don't feel like i'm Mm. complete yeah and yet actually the little interaction she has at the very beginning with the guy who runs the theater below her and he's just begging her to come in and uh, just see a film for free and have some popcorn and uh, a free soda. Uh, that, again, that just t- tells you with shorthand that she's a nice person who people want to do nice things for. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. And the the one other thing that I wanted to to mention was the at the tail end at the docks when she's telling the gill man that he has to go and that they are not going to be together. The the sign for without me is absolutely heartbreaking. It it's just it's like she's ripping something apart. And and the beauty of it for me is not in their species is the meeting of essence 
add an elemental god yeah. from the river. This is not an animal that exists. Right. This is not a, 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 a thing that you find in a zoo. Or a, it's a, a, a divine yeah. creature that represents the shape of water mm. in a way. And, and for her, it's a recognition of an essence of her in it. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, it's a beauty on the beast in which the beauty is imperfect. Mm -hmm. And she can be a real woman, not mm -hmm. a not a fairy tale princess. Right on the pedestal, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. and then the creature uh, doesn't transform. And yeah. it actually, sort of, uh, one of the most shocking ads of the creature, the act is uh, right in the third act. Yeah. You know, that shows you the creature is still, the still has um, a non domesticated side. You right, know? Mm -hmm. absolutely. Um, you know, when you are crafting a character and there's so much love where you can see you know the creature from the black lagoon but yet there is this kind of beautiful coloring for him and such when did it kind of lock for you because there's it's an homage to a character that i know you love so dearly but then it has to be something else too and so well, it has to be entirely different yeah. that's, why, that's why it took three years yeah you know you're not quoting you're creating yeah. you've been inspired by what you're creating is is truly difficult to to pull off the fact that this creature comes out of the water and it's alive. Mm -hmm. You know, it's difficult for dog. Mm -hmm. It's difficult for me to light uh, with Dan Laustrom, to, yeah. to art direct around it, to color code the movie around it. Mm -hmm. And very difficult for, for dog to never move like a human. Yes. And he truly does it because he's a real real actor. And, 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 and there was one scene that I took out in which he moved a little and he moved like a human. And I thought, ah, I'm taking it out. Can't have it. Can't have it. And just lastly, you know, was there a hardest scene for you to do? Was there, you know, your mountain, your fear moment in this movie? Well, I think there's a moment in which she disrobes. Yes. And the way we spend, we spend, we spend about... I don't know if it's three, four, or six hours. We spent an inordinate amount of time. Yeah. This is a movie that was a tight schedule, tight budget, 19.5 million. Right. The scope was 60, 70. And to spend almost half a day on that single shot, mm -hmm. and before she does it, you know, that the light is crossing like this, and there's a little bounce on her face, mm -hmm. but she's kept a little in the dark. We needed to light and lens and position the camera and move the camera in exactly the same the way I need it because that's where the movie hinges. I, I have one other thing before we get to the endings too. Um, and because in every one of these podcasts I've brought forth the idea that Guillermo tells a lot about characters through objects that they own. And this film's tough for that. But I have a theory. Uh because none of the characters really have objects that are like associated with them. Although maybe you could make a pretty good case for Strickland's Alabama How Do You Do, uh, which uh, is just Strickland's objects are his fingers. His fingers, but but <laughs> I actually think, but I think that there's a better interpretation of this because like Giles doesn't really have one, Eliza doesn't really have one, like no totemic objects. But they did something different when I was watching the when I was watching it again this morning and then watching the behind the scenes. You see. Every single main character, main player's living situation mm -hmm. and those apartments and those houses end up exemplifying who they are just as much as the previous film's totemic objects did. Yeah. 
Giles's apartment is him. It's surrounded. It's, surround, it's it, full of artistic. I was going to say his and easel and art desk would have been him if it was going to be any object. I was yeah. going to put it down to, but yeah, mm. yeah, but but yeah, because Giles' office, er, Giles' apartment is very dense. It's very full of what looks to be like memories, things from the past, in addition to books, because he's a very like well-read. He talks very much about like the different topics, uh, like mainly entertainment, but he speaks very intelligently about them. Uh, all of his art supplies. It's very cozy. It's very lived in. And it has half of the window that is being shared by Eliza's apartment, showing the the connection between the two of them. And Eliza's apartment is very aquatic. There's like water stains everywhere. The wallpaper is was like a fish scale that they actually used in the very opening of the movie. And there's a um, wave pattern that's faded out as well. Yeah, you have to look really carefully knowing that it's there, but it, there is a crashing wave on her wall. Yeah, and, and it feels... Uh, and then there's also lights filtering in through the floor from the, the cinema underneath, and it feels, a, for all the world, like an aquarium. Like that she's been pulled from somewhere else and she's being held in this tank with like a light from underneath so that you can see. Um, Strickland's house is always lit in yellow and amber, uh, which is very exemplified by how he and his family are very like, you know, fixed in amber to a certain extent. That, that, That they are that painting that Giles makes, that they are false and unmoving and non-dynamic and cold like there's nothing really there uh like giving up this personality and anything that would make them individual for this cultural ideal um and it's just very exemplified by the settings especially since they just moved there so there's not even a chance for there to be any kind of individualization uh which you know is just in keeping with the character uh but even like dimitri's apartment is very sparse it's very utilitarian as you would expect but it ends up having just a little bit like a couple of objects that show his going native like how he's becoming more and interested in things outside of his mission where he has the the butter cake he has like different objects here or there most things are very utilitarian but there are a couple of little tchotchkes and things that he has there that are that are not strictly there for his mission showing his straying away from it and then zelda's was the toughest cuz it's you only see it for a hot second really it's like one scene because it's a weird cross to me between Giles and Strickland because it's it has like this debris from her life with her husband but it's also like the other location that is shot in those yellows and that like that's almost sickly color showing more of the stagnation that I think is pretty prevalent in their relationship like, I, I didn't read, because a lot of how Zelda talked, like, I almost expected it to be, like, jokes, and then at the end, when you finally see her and her husband, that it's actually, like, more loving, it's more affectionate. But when you see him, like, he is distant and static and just rooted in that chair, almost as if he bought into that cultural lie that Strickland exemplifies, and his only place in it is not to be there. So it's it's a blend of these two because Zelda's a very warm, loving person who lives. Like, she's got a lot of stories. She's got a lot of love and a lot of empathy. But it's the blending of those two ideas and showing kind of uh, almost the discomfort between them is what I got from uh, her surroundings. And I, I do feel like that really exemplifies, like, the the what she's going through and, and in a sense, what, they're, what her and her husband are going through and, and that 
stagnation of that relationship. I think that's all the apartments or houses. So I was real proud of that interpretation. So I like <laughs> it. That's very good. That's yeah. very nice. well observed. And you mentioned yourself before that there are three interpretations. Is that is that of the ending? So yes. do you, would you like to, uh, to to furnish us with them? Because I, I I got two, but I think one maybe a, the third one might be a variation on one of those. But because uh, when we talked. To, before we start this, when we talked about Pan's Labyrinth, it, it's been long established that Pan's Labyrinth has this wonderful ambiguity at the end. It could be one thing, it could be the other. But then when you watch the commentary, Del Toro says, yeah, well, she draws on the wall in chalk and gets out of a room that's otherwise guarded. So this is a fantasy. This is actually happening. That kind of uh, removes that ambiguity and makes it, yeah, no, this is definitely real. This is actually genuinely happening. Yeah, but I feel like, uh, and this might be somewhat influenced by uh, Mikey's newest video on Inception, but I feel like this film actually does that ambiguity a lot, a lot better. Where it's kind of, it could be any of the endings, and you can find a reason and evidence to support any of them. Uh, and the three endings that I, I I think of and I find whenever I, I go through this film is like the happiest ending is that she was some kind of aquatic creature all along and didn't know that she was until like this moment where the the scars on her neck were in fact gills that were uh sewn shut when she was a child when they thought that it was like a wound and she was found uh, in the water by the river yeah she was found she was found yeah so she was found into in or next to the river uh there's a scene where she's like tracing her finger on a on a the bus window and for all the world it looks like she's controlling the raindrops water bending uh, and she she has a lot of like magical talent almost like she she watches the tap dance and then walks out to the hallway and then immediately can tap dance like there's a lot of like little things here and there that that draws her to be some kind of magical creature and then in the end when the gillman uh, revives her and heals her, he heals the wounds, uh, not the wounds, the, the gills on her neck that had grown shut, and that it was just giving her back a piece of who she was and showing her what she could be. Now, all of the, like, all of the evidence is circumstantial, because we're told some of these things from, you know, other people secondhand, and a lot of, like, like her manipulating the beads on the window, like, it, they immediately go in a different direction after a couple of seconds, so like you can't really believe that. Um, and everything is circumstantial, like I said. The second interpretation that I saw that's very similar to that is that she was human and that someone abused her and cut out her voice box, just like Strickland says, and that's where those wounds come from. He says Other- the world's a sinful place, because from his perspective, <laughs> from the perspective of the god-man looking at the world and saying, I own this thing, he also sees it and is disgusted. Mm-hmm. Because of all those weird those weird minority people. Um, and that she then goes through all of this, the you know, film happens the same way, she's just a human, and then in the end, whenever she gets knocked in, when the gill man revives her, he turns those scars into gills so that they can be together. And we have seen that the Gilman has the power of transformation of a person's physiology in, in ways that are beyond just restoration. Oh, we can give you a full head of hair. Yeah, which, which should be mentioned that it's not healing a wound. That is like modifying a chromosomal marker 
and possibly like hormonal influence therein. Like, so that's like a lot more deeper of a transformation than just healing. So like the first interpretation that's like good is that she heals the gills she always had and she was always this creature like a, a different creature a non-human creature and the second one is about that, her refinding that deep attachment to the ocean is from something fundamental about herself rather than just circumstantial yeah the second one is that uh she's just always been like different and finds who she should be with and in that moment is allowed like is, is kind of given the ability to do that granted uh, backstage access that's the splash ending because he yeah. was never murder that's, the, that's the beauty and the beast but she transforms to be with the beast as yeah. well okay yes and then the third ending is kind of the pan's labyrinth ending where she just dies and that ending scene that we see is giles narration giving us a happier ending for her because he's an artist he's a storyteller and like he is the narrator at the beginning and he's the narrator at the end so we can assume that this is a story he is telling us and he is not present to see her breathe underwater and go off with the gill man for all he knows he took her body in the water to have something to eat on his way back to the amazon uh so that's the third interpretation is that she just dies and Giles is embellishing the story to make it more of a fairy tale for the viewer. And the beauty is that all of those endings are supported by the text of the film, and all of them can be refuted by the text of the film, making it simultaneously all of those endings. So you literally get to choose which one you want to be true. Essentially. That's, that's what I think. So it's another shot he at uh, Pan's Labyrinth, only rather than uh, making an overt statement on which of the two ambiguities it is, um, it's uh, Del Toro perfects that sense of uh, open-endedness. And, and somewhat curiously enough, all that he would have had to do for Pan's Labyrinth to make it more of an ambiguous ending is to put a window in that room that she escapes from, just or some other means that she could have done it outside of drawing the the door. But that's I think not that's something the, that's widely known. Most people do interpret it as as mainly ambiguous. Oh yeah, well, but that's the great part actually is that for Pan's Labyrinth, I think we even talked about this, that moment of what can be like essentially irrefutable magic is small and easy to miss, which subverts the idea of like, oh no, this is ambiguous, maybe it was real life all along, but like if you're observant, if you know what's going on, no, 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 she is this princess, like there is magic going on here. And in Shape of Water, there isn't a moment like that. There's not like a smoking gun that you can't, that, that isn't automatically refuted in the text of the movie, like, almost immediately. Whereas in Pan's Labyrinth, there is literally the words in the text that say uh, that she left some of herself behind for those who knew where to look. Meaning, if you're looking for the right clues, you can actually find the true ending. Which is a wonderful interpretation of that. Uh, that I love so much. But yeah, so th those are the three endings that I've seen in Shape of Water, and they're, it's wonderfully ambiguous because they're all true and they're all false at the same time. Many, many times in my life, when you reach the bottom of the barrel, when you are saying, well, this life is not what it's meant to be, in comes a Sunday movie that saves your life. It's going to be a silly comedy, a minor musical, a melodrama, and it lifts you and heals you. And I wanted this movie to be like that.
to be sort of a healing little song for when you're feeling like that. Do you think that that's what you just said is why the film is so popular right now? Because it's more popular than anything you made. Oh yeah, no, no, it's it, doing it is. so well. It's it caught on like crazy. It is. Why? I was choking on it. I, I couldn't stand this world every day without making this movie because we are told, time and again, we wake up to to divisiveness and fear and pointing at the other as something you gotta fear, the lack of empathy, the lack of compassion. We're living in a tantrum era. The entire world has never been so close by social media and has never been so far apart. We are so afraid of our emotions right now. We are so afraid of not being cynical and appearing vulnerable. And I'm choking on it. I really, I, I really say the, the ideology that they use to control us, which they do, the ideology is very simple and we fucking buy it every time. It's us and them. There's, that's, an, that's an illusion. A fantasy that allows you to hate somebody because it absolves you. The fantasy of us and them is very simple. If it's your responsibility, you have work to do. That's not so comforting. But if I tell you, they are fucking your life. They make your life difficult. They take your schooling. They take your taxes. You hate them and you go, I was right all the time. It's them that I must hate. Whatever it is, sex, creed, race, whatever you want. There's so many them. And that's why I wanted to make a movie about us, about us together. The voiceless, the invisible, the hidden, the nameless. So this is going to conclude our run on the Del Toro films for now. But next week, as I said, The Orphanage will be coming through. And that is a truly wonderful ghost story. We already recorded it several weeks ago, and you guys are in for a treat because we went really deep on this one. And uh, there's uh, it's it's a mystery, and you definitely should see the film before uh, you hear us talk about it. It, It's totally worthwhile. Uh, yeah, that was that was such a good movie and such a good episode. Yeah. And then, if I may, since we're winding down, it occurred to me that I wanted to ask both of you two questions. Okay. Now that we've gone through all of Guillermo del Toro's films to date, uh, you know, I wasn't on the Pacific Rim one, but I was on all the other ones, which thank you very much for inviting me on. I hope I get to come back for whenever he makes more in the future. Uh, which of these films, which of his films are your favorite and which would you like to watch right now? Because that's not always the same. Hmm. Sharon? Right now, Crimson Peak. Is your favourite? No, Crimson Peak is the one I would want to watch right now. Um, and I am thinking about it. And... God, it's so damn close. It's so difficult. It's so They're damn close. so good. That's why I wanted to ask these questions, because like, I was thinking about this this morning when I was going over a lot of the, the background material, trying to think of what my answers would be for these questions. And I was like, it's so difficult 
to to narrow it down like i have answers but but it still took like a long time mm. and i i just sprung this on you so i like i you know we have you have to have time to think about it but yeah so crimson peak was what you'd watch right now you yeah. find eminently watchable yeah and i i think crimson peak is probably my favorite i think that will probably change mm. it's it's certainly changed since I saw it, that's the thing. Crimson Peak was not an instant win for me. Mm. Every time we watch it, it gets better. It gets but it gets better every time. I just go, that was amazing. Yeah, even better. And I love Pacific Rim. Pacific Rim is amazing, but it's been quite a while since I've thought, yeah, I really fancy watching Pacific Rim right now. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Alex, okay. Uh, my favourite is Crimson Peak. I would like to watch right now Pacific Rim because we haven't seen it for ages now that you mentioned it. We've watched all the others for this show, yeah. for this series of shows. Um, That's fair. And uh, the, I think, honestly, the best of his films, the best crafted, the one that, if I was going to say watch this one, it's exemplary of everything he can do. It's Pan's Labyrinth. Mm, I think yeah. Pan's Labyrinth is his strongest work. Yeah. I think I, I think I would go with that. I think it takes the strongest elements of all his best films and weaves them together. That doesn't mean he can't do better than that, and I love the fact that Crimson Peak is actually my favourite of his films. After having gone through all of these films with a fine-tooth comb over how many weeks and like really diving into them and, be, and end up like appreciating all of the films... The ones I've seen before, the ones I hadn't seen before, just so much more. I actually think that The Shape of Water is my favorite one. Wow. It gets better every time I watch it. All of them and I, do, though. No, but 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 there's a specific Except way. Except which gets worse. Oh, God, and yeah. And Mimic, which gets and mimic, worse. Chronos and Chronos gets about the same. Yeah. It just stays about yeah, the same. Yeah, yeah. But, for, for us, it gets worse. But for Shape of Water, there's something so... like. I love Pan's Labyrinth, but I kind of got to be in a mood to watch it now. Like, I've watched it a bunch of times fairly recently for this podcast. And that's kind of the the thing, because I have a little bit of fatigue right now. But even though I've watched Shape of Water, you know, several times this past week, I think it's my favorite because I think it's just every time I watch it, I notice something else. There's something else about it. Oh, the music in this scene is just so perfect. Oh, the lighting in this scene is just so perfect. Oh, the nuance of how Doug Jones moves in this scene is perfect. And there's something about it that resonates with me on a different level. Like, I love Pan's Labyrinth. I love The Devil's Backbone. I loved Crimson Peak. But there's something about Shape of Water that just draws me in a little more every time I see it. And every time I think... And now having gone... Because the first time I saw Shape of Water, I'm like, that's a pretty good film. Like, I really like that. But, like, you know, eh, it's not, like, as good as any of his other films that, like, we, like, I've seen. But now having gone through it, like, in such a meticulous level and having gained such an appreciation for the craft that he excels in, Shape of Water just feels so perfect it's it's del toro more so than pretty much any of his other films in a way that is so fundamentally elemental to my like what i what i jive on like what i appreciate and that it's it's just wonderful but the film that i'd want to watch right now is actually hellboy 2 uh because after diving into so many like deep interpretations of heavy 
themes of fascism and enculturation and toxic masculinity and just queer expression and all of these other things that we've done all these weeks, I kind of just want to see Ron Perlman all red-punching things. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, with our, our uh, Pacific Rim, we get to hit, see him say, where the hell is my goddamn shoe? <laughs> which is such a great scene. And see somebody hit a monster with a ship, which you don't yeah. get in many other places. Okay, there, there is a, a line in Shape of Water where Giles says, maybe we're both relics, and that ties in with his Drew and fading away, um, the elves in Hellboy fading away, the fantasy fairyland in Pan's Labyrinth, now underground and, and forgotten. Um, the devil's backbone, this uh, this tiny wisp of uh, 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 defiance in a sea of fascism, just struggling to hold on, um, and you know the original Hellboy, where the the, um, the this he has to he has to threaten God to, <laughs> to get back uh, Liz because they're that desperate by that point. In Pacific Rim, that element that's faded away, those humans that want to band together and work and are really up against it, they've only got four Jaegers left and they're being shut down. They've got days before they have no more funding. They have you know, hours before the rift gets uh, filled with more and more kaiju. They're on the very cusp. They've faded to the point where they may not be able to ever come back again. They succeed. And it feels like that if that's the natural end to the Del Toroverse, as it like begins with um, the Devil's Backbone and then goes all the way to uh, Pacific Rim, then what it's doing is suggesting that the hope that there is a hope for this for the people that feel that everything about what they love and everything beautiful about the world is being is receding can come back from the edge which is an ultimately eminently hopeful narrative thrust for your body of work yeah and the underlying theme of all of these movies is that traditionalism and conservative control isn't as powerful as real traditions like magic elemental elements of like who and what people are and the like what binds us all together in a way the bones of the earth rather than the constructions you put on it yeah the constructions of man if you will the lies we tell ourselves yes and all the films are just magic uh, in one way or another School of Movies is funded by our loyal supporters on Patreon. There would be no school without you guys. And our $15 tier gets a shout-out on every episode, so thank you to Joel Robinson, Abel Savard, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Sarah Montgomery, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, David Garcia Abril, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Chisholm. And true to my word, I set up historical hot takes on Twitter, so you can follow that account at historical underscore hot tea. Okay, well that will be all for Del Toro. We will see you next week for The Orphanage, and we will end on 
Tell you what, shall we end on You'll Never Know? It's mm. kind of perfect, don't you yeah. think? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Lauren, so, so much for being with us for these, uh, for these many, many, many weeks. It's been an absolute pleasure to uh, go through these films with you and really get to stretch my like critical faculties in a region that I haven't had much of an opportunity to because it's something I always used to love to do and like haven't had the opportunity and it's just been a delight and um a magical journey and thank you for inviting me down this this rabbit hole this labyrinth if you will uh (laughs) to see it through to attend and this series is going to be hard to top. Like, when we finished the Lord of the Rings series, it was like, how the hell are we going to do better than that? <laughs> I'll tell you how we're going to do better than that. Yeah, but it's all right. Yeah, but it took us years to get that far. And it'll probably take us years to get yeah. another one. They're going to have to make films that are better than these. Yes. Which is tough. Indeed. Okay. Thank you very much, folks. We will see you next week for The Orphanage. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out.
never know just how much I miss you. You'll never know just how much I care. You said goodbye, no stars in the sky refuse to shine. Take it from me, it's no fun. To be alone with moonlight and memories. You went away, and my heart went with you. I speak your name in my every prayer. You'll never know 